Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Happy Monday and welcome to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast, a.k.a. the Build Your Dream Life podcast, where each week we discuss waking up to who we truly are, finding our purpose, and the importance of building your dream life. I am so excited for this episode today with Eric Reem, professional speaker and author. In this episode, we dive into Eric's story, how he became a professional speaker, author, what led him to that, his new book, Rise Above Chaos, how you can rise above chaos, how you can live and lead a life of significance how to tame your beast every single day, and how to build your dream life. With that, enjoy this episode. Eric Reem, welcome to the Bits of Gold podcast. So excited to have you on today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Dan. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about you, share your story with the world. Maybe just before we jump into that, I'd love, to just, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself, your background, just kick things off. Yeah. So you live in uh, Manhattan there, Dan. And so really my book, Rise Above Chaos, which we're talking about today, my story in the book really starts me going to the United States Military Academy. I'm from Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana, Southern Indiana, any Big Ten fans out there. Well, actually, I live in Bloomington, Indiana now, uh, Indiana University. So that's that's a university town. And I ran fast enough back in the day. I graduated and I went to school in the 80s, high school in the 80s, <laughs> man. And so I graduated was fast enough where I had several Division One running programs that wanted me to come and hang out with them and compete with them. And West Point was one of those. West Point at the time in the mid-90s had probably one of the best distance running programs in the country. And so I was lucky enough to run with some of the fastest guys in the, in the country at the time. And I wanted to be a part of that. So I went to the United States Military Academy. And that really just kind of started my journey that led me to you know where I am today. And so when I graduated from the Academy in 1995, I did everything I thought was society wanted of me, you know, I was living the story that I've been taught, you know, so I went to college, got my degree, started my career, found a woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with Dan, started a family, started a career, was doing everything I was supposed to do, but yet I found myself kind of in a miserable state in 2005. So uh, fast forward 10 years when I graduated from academy, 10 years into my kind of adult life, if you will, quote unquote, I was kind of miserable with where I was and I shouldn't have been. I had a beautiful family, I had a beautiful wife who adored me, but something was off, something was wrong. And so that's what I talk about in that book when I hit my rock bottom in 2005. We can talk more about that, but that's kind of a little bit about my background. When I was in the military, though, I was a military police officer. I served in Europe and Bosnia-Herzegovina back in the mid-90s. Uh, Bosnia was the, the Ukraine, if you will. It was the big hot thing at the time. World War II-level genocide where the Muslims and the Serbs were killing one another. And I served in Operation Joint Endeavor. So my unit was one of the first Americans across the Sava River. We were there to separate the Muslims and the Serbs from killing one another. And so I was 22 years old. <laughs> 
leading a, a platoon of 33 men and women in a harm's way. And so I ended up becoming really fascinated by human dynamics. When I got back to Germany after we redeployed from Bosnia, one of my things I had to do in the military as a military police officer in my unit, I was a special investigator. And so I became fascinated by human dynamics. I became a quasi expert in uh, nonverbal communication and body language because I had to use that in, as an investigative technique. And I've really been fascinated by human dynamics and human connection ever since. Wow, that's fascinating. How long do you serve in the military for? Five years. When you go to the academy, Dan, it's a free school. Everything's paid for, but in return, you owe your service to your country, right? So uh, that's kind of the deal. When you sign up to go to one of the service academies, whether it be West Point, Navy, or Air Force, in return, you serve your country for five years. So that's what I, I signed up for was that five years, and that's what I did. I'm curious, I guess, is that when you're going there, you're doing like both college and, and military training? Is that how that works? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fully functional academic school. It's been around since 1802, since the American Revolution. And it's really, if you look at our history books, it's really a fascinating organization because it's trained most of the leaders that we read about in our history books. You know, the, the men and women that influenced our country that is today, a lot of them graduated from one of the service academy, whether it be you know, Jimmy Carter or uh, Eisenhower, General Patton, even General Lee, General Grant back that far back. And so it's a regular institution for college and higher learning, but also it trains the future generation to be the leaders that's going to lead our sons and daughters into harm's way if we find ourselves in a military conflict. Got it. And then you were deployed overseas for two years? Uh, no, I was there for three years. So I went to, I was stationed in Germany, but uh, my unit in Germany was immediately deployed to Bosnia. In fact, I linked up with my unit in Bosnia Herzegovina. So that was my very first real live duty station was right feet in the fire, throw you in the deep end of the pool and see if you can swim, was linking up with my platoon deep in Serb territory. And then when we redeployed back, I had about another year or so in Germany before I moved on to Fort Carson, Colorado, where I ended my time in the military in Colorado Springs. When you were deployed overseas, how old were you? 22, you said? Yeah, I was about 22, 23 years old around that time because right when I graduated from the academy, I had to go through some more schooling in Anniston, Alabama before they sent me off. So I was probably closer to probably 23 at the time. Got it. What's it like being 23 serving in the military? It's fascinating. It's way out of your comfort zone, humbling, all those above. I mean, at 23 years old, Dan, I, I grew up in Indiana. I was pretty naive about human dynamics and human connection. And you're thrown into really a hodgepodge is what makes up of America, uh, every walk of life. I mean, I had people serving with me that were every religion, every race, background, different parts of the country, but we all serve one purpose. Number one, we wanted to come back home alive. <laughs> you yeah. know? And number two, you know, we love our country and we want uh, to preserve our way of life. And so we were all together under one mission, serving with one another, and is really kind of a, a beautiful experience when you when you get to that point in life that we all have one singular goal, and that is let's complete the mission and get back. So it was fascinating, man. You talk about a huge learning curve and just what life's all about. I think you know we don't do it in the, our country, and I don't necessarily a, an advocate of this, but there are some countries that require people to serve in the military for two years, and there is something to be said by that because you really do gain a different appreciation when you go overseas and you're no longer just in the U.S. dealing with U.S. issues. I mean, now you're dealing with world issues as a young man or a woman, and you kind of see what life is like outside of our country and what other people are experiencing. And it does give you a little bit more appreciation of what we got back here. Yeah, it must really open up your eyes to just the world as a whole. I mean, I'm trying to think about it through my own lens as, you know, right when I finished college, 21 years old, and I was focused on what am I doing with my life? How am I going to pay my bills? What do I want to do with my life? 
do I want to take this job? Do I want to take that job? And it sounds like, you know, you're faced with a totally different set of problems, solutions, and things that are consuming your mind at that point in your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a little different than when you graduated from school because you got to figure out where you want to go. In the military, then you know exactly where you're going. <laughs> you're going in the military and you're going to, the only thing you have to choose is what branch of service. So I chose military police. I chose military police because it makes up 3% of the army, Dan, but it's involved in 98% of the army's mission. So I knew if I was going to be in the military, I might as well do it all in and be able, be able to go anywhere in the world. And so that's, that's why I did it. And it's pretty fascinating. And the interesting thing as a young man, it's different when you go into a regular job, right? And you make a decision and maybe that decision was a mistake and maybe you lose some income, revenue, it costs you a little more money. When you're 23 years old and you're leading men and women that have live rounds with live ammunition, weapons, and there's also a, a group that opposes you that also has equipment, you may make a decision that may cost somebody's life. And mm -hmm. so it's really humbling to know that you know your job as a leader is to bring those 33 men and women back because their moms and dads, their sisters and brothers, their sons and daughters, and their loved ones are really dependent on you to get them back home. And that's a huge honor, but also a heavy burden that you have to take on. And at 22 or 23 years old, man, it's pretty fascinating that our country will train you up to do that and give you the keys of the kingdom and really allow you to have that burden. It's amazing they let you do it as, at a young age because know what I know now, looking back at that time, I was an idiot you know, <laughs> and somehow I was able to figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say from your time in the military was one of the biggest lessons that you took away or how did it shape your life moving forward? Well, I talk about in the book when I first got to Bosnia and probably within the first week that I was there, we deployed into a real mission. I was part of the what they call the QRF. So we were in Srebrenica, which was real way south deep in the Serb territory and Al-Qaeda was infiltrating the country and they were kind of putting themselves with the Serbs and trying to disrupt our operations. They were trying to embarrass us on a world stage. And so they were doing all kinds of things to try to get us to, to do things that would cause problems, basically. And so we had this, what was called the Quick Reaction Force. And so my unit was charged with that. And I was a leader of the QRF, they call it QRF. And we got activated in the middle of the night. There was a hostage situation downtown in uh, Srebrenica, and I was leading it. And I just totally screwed up, Dan. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know my unit well enough yet. I just totally embarrassed myself. And it was horrifying. And I could see it in my soldiers' eyes that they were trying to figure out, am I somebody they can trust? You know, hmm. It's funny, one of the fascinating things, if you read the statistics in Vietnam, I was a lieutenant. And number one ways that lieutenants died on the battlefield was getting shot in the back by their own soldiers, right? So if the conditions are right, people will turn on each other. And so you literally, it's, it's meritocracy at its finest. If they don't believe in you and you lose them, then they're not going to support you. You're not going to back you up, right? And so I remember I was there. We, we didn't shower for the first few weeks while I was there because we just there was no running water or anything. It was just a totally, really a situation I wasn't used to on top of the fact that I wasn't sure if I would be able to implement what I learned in the academy. It's one thing to learn it in a classroom. It's another thing to actually implement it in real life. And so I was still trying to just get my my sea legs, if you will. And so I remember uh, finding kind of a location where nobody's around. And I just kind of took my helmet off and took a deep breath for the first time and literally just sobbed. I just cried. You know, all my emotions came out. I was like, I literally didn't think I had what it took, you know, and what was I going to do? I mean, you're in a situation, you just can't go home. You can't yeah. take a nap. You can't shut your door and binge watch Netflix. <laughs> You've got to face your soldiers. This is real world stuff. You, there's no place to hide. Well, there is a um, operations sergeant there. His name is uh, Tuli Tuli Malalulu. He's a Samoan, really tall, stoic guy. 
And he has calves, Dan, were bigger than my body. The guy looked, he was the rock before the rock was the rock. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. If they made a movie about this guy, rock would play him. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. He's one of those guys you see in the movies, you know, never smiled, had dark rings around his eyes, kind of stoic looking. And he would always rip me in front of every, all the other soldiers. He would just, he was brutal with me and the other lieutenants. And he had this tent up on the side of the hillside. I mean, we were literally on a guy's farm. We purchased this guy's farm. We had our unit there. We had, it was all built up with concertina wire to keep the enemy out, all that. And we all lived in these big, what they call GP mediums, where it can like 13 or 14 people sleep in a tent. Well, he had his own little tent on the side. And every night I'd see it glowing with a small little fire and he'd be up there. It was like, you know, I don't know. He almost looked like a God up there, you know? Mm. And so one day I got the courage, one night I got the courage to go up there and talk to him. And I remember going to his tent and he had a totally different demeanor when the soldiers went around. He was actually very kind, very gentle. He smiled. It was the first time I ever saw, knew, knew that he had teeth, you know? He was yeah. actually a very gentle man. And I just came in there and said, Sarge, I need to talk to you because I was trained at the military academy that if you need help, go to your, what they call the non-commissioned officers, go to your non-commissioned officers. They're, they're the ones that know what they're doing. And I said, you know, what am I doing wrong? I feel like I'm not connecting with the soldiers. I feel like I'm not connecting as a Lieutenant, as a leader. What am I doing wrong? I remember what he said, I'll never forget it. Cause I've used it for the rest of my life. He said, you're depending too much on your own skill set and what you know. You're trying to be a leader by know it at all. And there's no way you can do it. The only way you're going to survive and get back home and bring home your soldiers with you. You got to learn to trust your soldiers. You got to learn to trust your non-commissioned officers. They know what they're doing. Relinquish that and give it to them and allow them to be what they were trained to be. And they will allow you to be what you were trained to be. Learn to trust them. And he was right. And so I realized that if I was going to survive and if I was going to thrive, I couldn't do it by myself. I needed my soldiers. And so I began to stop trying to be this lieutenant that you maybe you see in the movies that knows everything. Instead, I realized there was a lot I didn't know and just give up that power, if you will, and allow the soldiers to be who they were. Eventually, I found my spot. I found my place and I began to find my groove and I began to really get integrated within my platoon. And over time, we gelled and became very successful. In fact, by the time I left Bosnia, there were 16 lieutenants in our battalion. I was rated the highest performing lieutenant out of all the battalion. I gained the trust of my battalion commander. If there was any a really hard mission, he would send me and my platoon in. We were the Wolfpack platoon. We became one of the most highly, I don't want to say decorated, but rewarded platoon because we just found our groove. But it all started with me going up to Tuli Tuli Malalua <laughs> and him just saying, dude, you just got to gotta relax and allow your soldiers to be their soldiers. So I've used that for the rest of my life, knowing that where, whatever situation I go into, I don't need to know everything. I just need to connect with the people that are doing life with me, allow them to work within my strengths, work within my strengths, and then we'll find our place together. So that was a big thing I learned. Yeah, that makes sense. It's pretty fascinating because, you know, I'm sure right after at that age, it's definitely interesting. You think about someone who's 22, who's just going to like get a job, the lessons you're going to learn through that experience versus actually serving in the military in all these real world situations where, you know, the consequences are can be life and death. It, uh, you know, I'm, the stakes are significantly higher and I'm sure you walk away with significant life lessons as a result. Yeah, for sure. Everything seems easier after that, to be honest with you. And so uh, sometimes I have to remind myself that if I ever find myself feeling sorry for myself because maybe my car's not working or maybe I had a fight with my spouse, I always had to I'll go back to that time and say, it could be worse. This could be Bosnia. Yeah. <laughs> and then that always resets my focus. It gets my perspective in the right place. I'm sure. So what comes after the military? Well, after the military, I just met my wife, soon to be wife. It's funny because I talk about this in the book too. It was March 24th, 2000. I was had my 
bags packed. I was going to, it was Friday afternoon and I was about to, after my day was over, I was still in the military. I was in Fort Carson, Colorado. I was what was known as the battalion S4. So I was in charge of all the logistics for the entire battalion. I had my bags packed because that night, Dan, after I got off work, I was going to go up the mountains and go skiing with one of my best friends in the whole world. I was just so excited. It had been a really hard couple of weeks. And I was just looking forward, just relaxing over the weekend, just not thinking about things. Well, probably about an hour or two before we were scheduled to leave and I was getting out that day, I got a call from my dad and he said some words to me on the phone that really kind of changed the total direction of my life. He said, uh, I need you to be strong. And then the next thing he said, he started to cry. I could barely understand what he was saying, but I realized as he was kind of trying to get the words out that my sister, my older sister, Kim, Kimberly Montina McCormick, she's about, she was about eight years older than me. Very awesome woman, someone that... I looked up to, she was my best friend, but my dad told me she had passed away suddenly and he needed me to come home. And so that changed everything. So instead of going up to go skiing, I got a plane ticket and I flew home. I remember being on the plane. I was kind of numb, you know, kind of in disbelief. I did, it really didn't hit me that my sister was gone. It didn't hit me until we got there. And I remember a couple of days later, we went into the funeral home before they had the showing. They allow the family members to come and they see their loved one first before people could come in. And I remember walking up to the casket and seeing my sister, my best friend, the person that really was my mentor, seeing her for the first time, her lifeless body. And I just all I just broke down and everything, every piece of energy that I had left my body. I fell to my knees and just realized my sister was gone. It didn't look like her. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but when you see someone close to you like that and their spirits no longer in their body, it's just not the same. And so it hit me at that moment that my sister was gone. And then I remember we had the showing that day. and, And when someone dies, I think prematurely, she was only 34 years old. There's something tragic about that. And communities tend to come together. I remember people started showing up from all over. People started sending us notes. People started calling us. We got letters, flowers from all over the world. My sister was a professional entertainer, ballerina, jazz, tap. She traveled the world. She impacted a lot of people. In our town, about 80,000 of the flower shops, they sold out of flowers. There was no more flowers. So people started sending blankets. They started sending money. They didn't know what to do. The average wait time for people to wait in line to come and pay their respects is over four hours, Dan. It was unbelievable. But I don't remember what any person said to me that day. You know, I don't remember what anyone said in that moment. All I remember are the faces of the people that just showed up, right? Yeah. And there was one particular young lady that showed up. She was the mayor's daughter and she was about 20 years old. She was in college and she was studying for her finals. And the mayor's wife went up to her and said, hey, we're going to go pay our respects to Kimmy. She called her Kimmy. My dad was the chief of police. Her dad was the mayor. So our families knew each other, but I didn't know her. She wasn't going to come because she was studying for her finals and I'm not going to come. And so the mayor's wife said, I think you should come because, you know, it'd be a show of respect. And she goes, no, I can't come. I got these finals I'm studying for. So as the mayor and their wife was leaving, something changed in her heart, the mayor's daughter. And she said, I do want to come. Wait for me. I'll, I'll come. And she got dressed real quickly. She got in line. She waited for about four hours. When she finally got up to pay her respects, we laid eyes on each other for the very first time. Right. And within six months, we were engaged. And nine months later, we were married. And that would be my wife, Aaliyah. Mm. And... I just remember that my entire life in that moment was changed because one person made a decision to show up and that was my wife. If she wouldn't make that decision, who knows what would have happened, but she made that decision. And so every time I look at a piece of art that my kid made, or every time I, I watch a video of my, one of my sons doing something cool on, on track or football, I'm reminded that I get an opportunity to be a good husband or be a good father in honor of my sister because my wife decided to show up. And so that was something that I I'll always take with me is that at the end of the day, you just got to learn to show up in people's lives. Yeah. 
Absolutely. What changed in your own life following your sister's death? Uh, well, I think what changed was it was time for me to put my big boy pants on. <laughs> you know, when I graduated college, I had a lot of pent up energy. And so when I went to Bosnia, I got even more pent up energy. And when I finally got back to Germany and I was living my best life, man, I mean, we would go on party and binges for two or three days at a time, you know, and wouldn't sleep. And then I just pass out and sleep for like 20 hours straight, you know. And then, you know, I was living the single life in Colorado Springs, just kind of enjoying life. And it really wasn't thinking about my future, was just living in the moment. And then when my sister passed away, one of the things that really intrigued me is I just remember that was a really devastating time for me. But when I, I remember as we were, I was flying home, I noticed that people were laughing and engaging in life. Basketball tournaments were happening that the world just didn't care. The world didn't care that my sister was gone. They didn't care that I was in deep despair at the moment. Life goes on with or without me. And my, I guess at the time, my sister filled that void in my heart that I think is meant for a significant other because she was just someone I was close to. And when that, that was taken from me, I had kind of that space in that my heart. And that's when I realized that maybe it's time to think about what my next move in life's going to be. And when I met Aaliyah, that kind of put things in motion that, hey, now it's time to start thinking about my next phase. Next thing you know, we had some kids. Now I'm a grown up and now I got to make grown up decisions. And so I think the biggest thing was when my sister passed away. She was the elder statesman in the family. And now it was me. Now it was time for me to kind of grow up a little bit. That makes sense. You know, obviously, when you lose someone significant in your life, there's a tremendous hole in, in your heart and the loss that you're carrying with you. But it's always been an eye-opening experience for me. I lost both my parents by the age of 25. Mm. I think loss can give you a lot of lessons as it relates to how to live your life, how to live your life with a greater meaning, greater level of intention, because you realize that this whole thing, this whole life is so fragile that our time on earth is so precious. Prior to losing my own parents, you know, when I would wake up, I would be like, oh, everything's great. Life's great. I never really spent any time thinking about death loss, how fragile, I guess, just every single day is, you know, like now as a result of my own loss, I wake up and the first thing typically on my mind almost every day is that today's a gift. It's not a guarantee. And that's sort of how I navigate in my own life. It's a weird way to hold both this tremendous loss on one hand, but also, you know, how something so significant can shape your life. Yeah. It gives you the gift of perspective. That's for sure. You know, everybody that died yesterday, Dan had plans for today, right? And yeah. so that definitely hit me when my sister was taken from us and she just had a, she had a four-year-old kid and watching how that's impact him. And it happens in many different things. Like one of my sons right now, he's a big time runner and he has a chance to really run at a significant level in college. And he was really poised to have a really good season. And last week uh, he was diagnosed with having a um, stress fracture in his shin. It's going to keep him out for six weeks. And so who knows if he's going to come back in time to finish out the season. He's going to miss a lot of big races. Last night, he was supposed to be in this big meet that he qualified for, and only a few people qualified, and he had to watch from the sidelines as his friends competed. And he got back in the car with me last night, and he just kind of broke down and started crying. He's like, why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening. And I said, you know, what you're experiencing right now is something you're going to experience your entire life is things are going to be taken away from you. And what you got to gain from that is that Every time you get on the track to run, you just got to really be grateful you have that moment because you don't know when your next race is going to be. This could be the last one. And so if you live your life with that healthy, I think, view of dose of perspective, it makes it easier for you to really soak it in, I think, knowing that, you know, nothing's, like you said, nothing's guaranteed. Whether it be your life, whether it be your health, whether it be an opportunity that you're enjoying right now, things change all the time. In a moment, you know, things can change. There's no guarantees. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look what's going on in Ukraine right now. A month ago, 
at Christmas time, they were celebrating Christmas in their homes, you know, and now they're displaced. Their homes are gone. I mean, it changes in an instant, no matter where you are, what you're doing. Yeah. Like, I guess at what point in your life did you hit rock bottom? Just going back to what you referenced at the beginning of the show. Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate you asking that. That was uh, 2005. And the way I define rock bottom, Dan, it's not about what happens to you because things happen. Life on planet Earth happens. You're going to have financial issues, health issues. To me, even though those things can be hard, that's not rock bottom. To me, rock bottom is when you fail in relationships, because I think that's the most important thing that we all hold near and dear our heart is the people that we carry with us, right? And so when you start to let people that you respect down and people that you're close to down, that's when I think you start to hit that rock bottom moment. And that's where I was in 2005. And it came to me in what I call gut punches. They came in about three simultaneous gut punches. The first was when my wife looked at me. She's five foot two, beautiful young lady, big doe eyes. She looked at me when her eyes were bloodshot because she'd been crying and said, I deserve better than this. I wasn't living up to her expectations of what she thought I should be as a husband, which was hard for me to hear because she chose me out of all the guys she could have spent her life with. She chose me and I chose her. She was my best friend. And Dan, when your best friend looks at you and says, you're not good enough right now, that hurts, you know? And so I was letting her down. The second gut punch is when I laid my hands on my dad in anger and threw him out of my house, literally threw him out. I told him to get out of my house. This was in 2005. My twin boys were just born. I lived in Colorado. My dad lived in Indiana, my mom, and they flew out because they didn't see us very often. So they wanted to spend time with us. They wanted to meet their new grandchildren. They wanted to help us out. So they were scheduled to stay for 10 days. My dad and I lasted two before we got into a, a fight. And I... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever have those outer body experiences when you're just doing something in anger, Dan, and you know you shouldn't be doing it, yeah, but you do it anyway because it's just it, I don't know what it is. You just get that momentum going and you do something in anger. My dad was my best man at my wedding, and he's my best friend, someone I looked up to. He was a hero in my life, but yet I found myself putting my hands on my dad in anger, and he went home that day. We didn't speak for six months, and that hurt. Gut punch number three is when. My human resources director at the utility in Colorado that I worked at the time said, you're suspended. And so I was in a leadership position. I was fresh out of the military and people I were leading were saying that I was abusing my power. And basically I was treating like soldiers. I had not made the transition to civilian world yet. Um, I lacked self-awareness. I was highly ambitious, but I was also angry because I wasn't living out my purpose. I was lost. And so I was taken out on them. And so they told me you're suspended. And so I found myself in 2005, on that Monday morning when I was supposed to be at work, I wasn't allowed to go back to work. And I put on my clothes and told my wife I'd be back a little later. And I started driving 
And after about an hour or so, I found myself in this little town called Niwak, Colorado. It's about 15 minutes from Boulder and about 45 minutes from Loveland where I lived. So I was far enough where I could get away, but close enough I can, I can get home if I, my wife needed me. And so I grabbed a cup of coffee at this little coffee shop downtown Niwot. It was almost like a picturesque Hallmark movie type setting. Sit right next to a window where I could see downtown. I literally sat there every day for five days, just thinking and contemplating that was my life and asking, how did I get myself here at this young age where I was failing in my marriage? I was failing with my dad. I was failing at work. I was failing in all the major domains of my life. And how did I get there, number one? And number two, what do I need to change if I was going to get back on track. Mm. Was there something specifically with your wife or was it that was just like compounding or was it, was your time being put elsewhere? I'm curious about that a little bit. So it was a combination of a lot of things, but the main thing was I pretty much rejected my daughter when she was born. So I wasn't ready. We, we were surprised with the pregnancy. I remember when my, my wife told me, you know, you get these moments in life you wish you could take back, you know? I remember my wife told me she was pregnant. My response was, really? You know, mm. she was wanting, you know, joy, oh, you know, hugs and all this and that. And I was like, really? This is bad timing, you know? And I remember her crying then. And when my daughter was born, I just wasn't connecting yet. You know, I wasn't ready for it. And the timing was off. And I remember my boss, he was really critical of me for me during this time. Number one, he saved my job. When I got suspended, he stood in the gap and made sure that I, because he knew I had talent. He knew I had some place to go with my life and he wanted to protect me. But I remember him pulling me aside. His name is Ralph. And he said, listen, you got to realize that your life has changed. You're in a different phase now. And you're going to have to adjust to this different phase of your life. You're no longer just you or just a husband. You're now a father and you need to accept that. It took me about a year to figure that out. But once I got in the groove, I got in the groove. But that year, though, was tough. And my wife had a hard time. She was basically doing it all, taking care of the family, taking care of the home. I was kind of absent. I'd come home. I had a golf club. I played golf or I played video games. I just was absent. Mm. And when I started to make some changes, number one, I sold my golf clubs to my dad's. My dad bought them for me. They were Callaway golf clubs. I sold them for like $200 in a garage sale. My dad was livid with me because they were $2,000 golf clubs. And uh, I sold my Xbox and never looked back <laughs> because I knew I needed to change. But that was a big thing with my wife was I was just absent. Got it. Physically there, but like not, yeah. not actually present in that moment. Yeah, I wasn't an equal partner for sure. She was kind of doing it on her own. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, probably a good move with the Xbox because video games can be quite addicting. Yeah, that's right, man. The Xbox has been slowly introduced, though. Now I got teenage boys, so I can almost, under the guise of hanging out with them, we can play some games together, or some Madden football or something like that. So I'm actually spending time with my boys now, yeah, right? Yeah. So well, it's good it, it came sense. back in much later. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, I've turned my Xbox off long ago, but every now and then I'll turn it back on and I'm like, wow, thank God I keep this thing unplugged. It's very addicting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You lose track of time for fast doing something like that. A hundred percent. So you hit rock bottom. How do you pull yourself out of that? Well, that's a good question. Well, the first thing I had to ask myself, what was it that was holding me back? And so, you know, when you spend, and I, in fact, looking back at it, the baristas at that coffee shop, I thought I was weird. I was this guy that just didn't talk to anybody, grabbed this cup of coffee and sat for seven hours in a corner, right? <laughs> Make, like I'm, I should be paying rent, like I lived there or something. And by the end of it, they knew, I knew them, they knew me by the end of the week. But I remember just going there and just thinking, Every time I started to get some momentum in my life, Dan, it seemed like there was this unknown force that would trip me up, you know, that was always kind of this negative voice that would be whispering in the back of my ear. And whenever I got something good going, it would disrupt me. And I realized it's this voice that we all have in our hearts and our lives, right? Society and I think 
different religions call it different things, but I gave it a name and I decided to call it the beast, you know? So I'm, I'm from a military background. If you're going to win the battle, you got to identify who the enemy is. And so that was this negative voice that when I go to bed at night, it's always there with me. When I wake up in the, uh, in the middle of the night, you ever wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep because your mind won't shut oh, off. Yeah. That's the beast talking to you. <laughs> you're not good enough. You're not ready for tomorrow. What, you know, your spouse isn't giving you enough, whatever that is. And so I gave a name to it and, and you know, this beast. And I, then I had to ask myself, well, if I've got this force in my life, can I overcome it? Can I defeat it? Could I tame it? And so the answer to that question had to be yes. I had to figure out a way to tame the beast. The other thing I had to figure out, well, what was my problem? I had talent. I mean, I'm a West Point grad for crying out loud. I led soldiers in the, in the harm's way successfully. You know, I had talent, I had energy, but I had lost my way. And so what was the problem? And so what I began to land on was that I lack significance in my life. And this has really become the premise of what I do. I'm a professional speaker. I, I travel the country speaking on this one premise. And the premise is simply what I learned in 2005. And I believe that each and every one of us, including you, Dan, all your listeners, each and every one of us, we want to lead some level of significance in our life to know that our life has meaning, right? We, none of us wants to get at the end of our life. And you see this sometimes when you watch folks that are older in their life and they're kind of bitter. And is it because when they look back on their life, they realize that maybe they missed a lot of opportunity. Maybe it didn't mean much. You know, none of us wants to get to that point to know that after all this time we spent on this earth, in our families, in our communities, in our work, that it literally meant nothing to nobody. Mm. You know, we all want to matter to somebody. And if you don't have a sense of purpose and a sense of, hey, I'm living my best life, I'm li living a life of significance, what happens is what I discovered is that the beast is going to fill it with something because we were meant to live on purpose, whether it's good or bad, we're going to do it one or the other. And so my problem was I was going down the bad. I was leading a destructive lifestyle because I had to fill my life with something. And so I was not filling with the right things. So I had to figure out, okay, I had to tame the beast, but I also have to fill my life with something that is positive that I can contribute to society that's going to make society better, but also, also quench that unbelievable hunger that I got to do something that matters. And so that's what I landed on. And so what I did was I started to take some steps because I knew the good news at the end of it, even though I was at rock bottom, I still had my wife, right? I still had my dad. I still had my job, but something needed to change. And so I went on a 15 year journey and developed a methodology for my own life that worked. And now what I'm done is I put it in a format that I want to pass on to others. Got it. So that's how your book Rise Above Chaos comes about. That's right. Yeah. Because I realized I wasn't the only one that dealt with this problem. In fact, I remember when I was in Bosnia, one of the things I remembered is we'd go in these small towns and you'd see these young men, Dan, that were just loitering in the town. They had no purpose in their life. They just kind of roamed the town with no job, nothing. That's why they started to get themselves in the situation they shouldn't have got them into. That's why we were there to separate them is when they had no purpose. They had no idea what they want to do with their lives. They began to fill it with things that became evil. And so that's something that fascinated me was I wondered if all of us have that same potential for evil. Do you have that same potential for evil, Dan? Do I have it? Or is it just something we read about in the history books during Nazi Germany or something that we see on our TVs that's happened in the Ukraine or something that I saw in Bosnia? Is that something that's just part in different parts of the world or do we all have that same level of darkness? Well, what scared me is when I laid my hands on my dad in anger, that time in 2005, I recognized that darkness because I saw it in Bosnia and I felt it in my heart. And that's when I realized that if the set of conditions are right, all of us have that same level of darkness residing inside us. The question is, is can we actively stay ahead of it 
instead of going down that path, use that same level of energy and talent for something good. And that's what I wanted to answer. And I feel like there's a lot of people that are like me right now, or if they haven't hit that yet, they will be. And so I wanted to write a book that I wish I could have had in 2005 to cut my journey a lot shorter. So it didn't take 15 years. That makes sense. So on the topic of living a life of significance, you know, I would totally agree that everyone does want to live a life of significance, of meaning. On this podcast a lot, we talk about the importance of setting intention and being very intentional with, with the direction you, you decide to take your life. And that setting intentions is a very good first step in, you know, just leading your life the direction that you want to take it. But I'm curious, what does living a life of significance mean to you? And I guess if someone's trying to figure out hey, how can I bring more meaning into my life? How does someone start their own journey in doing that? Yeah, these are good questions, man. You're good at this, Dan. <laughs> but these are really good questions. And so what I realized is that the problem with me is I didn't have my why, right? And we all need that. We all have this fundamental thing in our heart, call it whatever you want, that always asks the question why. If you don't know what your why is, Dan, why do you even get out of bed in the morning? What's the point mm -hmm. if you don't know what your why is? And so we all want that. Mark Twain said, the two most beautiful days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Well, for me, it took a quite a long time for me to land on my why. In fact, I didn't really get to my why until I was 45. Uh, so I'm about to turn 49. So I've only been living in my true why for the last four years. Some people find their why much earlier. Some people find it much later, but we all must find it if we're ultimately going to get to where we, what we were created to be in our life. And so I discovered there's a formula that helped me. It's a two-part formula to figure out your why. And the first is the passion component, because what I realized is that chaos never leaves us. We go from one chaotic moment to the next chaotic moment. You know, we went from COVID to now what's going on in Ukraine, to what's probably going to lead to some economic woes. Who knows where economically we're going to go as a country and how that's going to affect us, whether it be in your own life personally, right? That you find out some negative news health-wise. It doesn't matter what the chaos is. There's always going to be chaos. That's life on planet Earth. Well, the only way that you can rise above it is you have to have the fuel to do it. And the fuel to rise above chaos is your passion. At the end of the day, your passion is what's going to fuel you to get out of bed in the morning to do the things you need to do to live your life of significance. Well, how do you know what your passion is? I kind of landed on one simple question that helped me, and that is, what was I willing to suffer for? Because that's what your true passion is. Because when you wake up, you're met with resistance from day one, no matter what. Every day you wake up. I was met with resistance today, Dan. It's Sunday. I never do these things. <laughs> I, man, I got to hang out with Dan at one o'clock. I got to stop my normal routine. My wife even said, are we going to have some time to relax? I said, now I got to talk to Dan, <laughs> this guy I've never met before. So I had to rise above that negative feeling because of my passion. What am I willing to suffer for? Well, here's what I'm willing to suffer for. And for whatever reason, and this isn't for everybody. Everybody has their own passion. But for whatever reason, I have a passion for people, Dan. I always have. Ever since I was a young kid, I was always attracted to groups. There's some people, when they hear that, they want to throw up in their mouth a little bit. There's some people just want to get caught up in a book, in a corner, and read a book. There's some people just want to tinker with machinery that's are living their best life. Not me. Where's the most amount of people, and how can I be with those people? And so I've always been attracted to people. And I've always been willing to uh, risk my own self to be a part of groups that could potentially reject me. And so I realized that, you know, for whatever reason, that is my passion. I got to lean into that. I'm willing to suffer for relationships, right? So if you and I became friends really close, Dan, and you rejected me or you did something that was negative towards me, I'm willing to take that risk and be rejected by you because I have a passion to get to know people like you. Mm -hmm. That's one part of the equation. So what are you willing to suffer for? Number one, 
I just want to jump in before we get to the second part. Yeah. I really love what you're saying about what you're willing to suffer for. I actually recently read something online. It was a blog post that someone wrote and I, I don't remember. I wish I could credit them, but it went the right question to ask in your life isn't what do you want, but it's what are you willing to suffer for? And yeah. It's very much similar to what you're discussing now where, you know, a lot of people discuss or say, "Hey, I really want that thing. I really want that thing." But then when they start suffering for that thing, they say, "I don't really want that thing anymore." That's right. That's definitely a, just a really interesting lens to actually think through the things that you actually want. What are you willing to suffer for? I just wanted to highlight that because it's something I, I recently read and like completely resonated with. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. But that's just one part of it, right? Because that was my problem is I had passion, but no direction. That's why I got suspended mm. because I was leaning into these relationships, but in a, in a not a healthy way. And so the second part of the equation is what is your superpower? And so when you align your superpower with your passion, that's when your why starts to form in front of you. It's not something you can sit down in a coffee shop some afternoon and fill it out and say, oh, this is my why. It's something you have to pursue with your passion and your superpower together. Well, how do you know what your superpower is? Well, there's three questions I talk about in the book that I use myself. The first one is, what do your friends say about you? It's amazing how people close to you give you breadcrumbs on what you're good at, right? And so I remember I would do these talks in front of people at conferences. I would do these breakout sessions. I'd be at a conference and I would agree to speak for an hour or something like that on the area that I was an expert in. And after one of these talks, I remember this guy coming up to me, somebody I knew really well and I had a lot of respect for him. And he said, Eric, you're really good at this. When are you going to do this full-time? Like, what are you talking about? He goes, when are you going to be a full-time speaker? I'm like, Oh, I never thought about that. It never even occurred to me you could be a professional speaker. I thought that was for like Hall of Fame football players or people that fell off Mount Everest and lived to tell about it. I thought it was something you had to be something special. You just couldn't be a regular dude. The second question you have to ask is what comes easy to you? And there's things that you do, Dan, naturally that you take for granted, whatever that is. There's some people they can look at a spreadsheet and they can see patterns in that spreadsheet fast. They're good with numbers. There's other people that can open up a car hood. They could taste the oil and tell you what's wrong with it. They just have that gift, right? Me, I had the gift where I could get up on stage, take an idea and communicate that idea very effectively. And so I've realized that communicating in groups of people, whether it be a two people or 10,000 people, didn't matter to me. I didn't realize there were people out there that hated to speak in front of people. I just thought everybody liked to do that. And then the third thing is where are you getting opportunities? So opportunities will show up where your superpower is if you just look at it. And I realized looking back at it, people were always asking me to speak, saying, hey, would you speak on this? I don't want to do it. Can you do it? And then I started thinking about that. If I have a passion for people and I love to communicate, that's when I started, my why began to open up to me that maybe speaking is something I need to pursue. And so at 40, I think it was 47 years old, actually, whatever, however old I was in 2019, I quit my day job and became a, a full-time professional speaker for the very first time. And I've never looked back. Wow. What was that like? Was that nerve wracking for you? Was that, was that stressful or was that, was that exciting? I'm sure it was a handful because you really did like a, a complete 180 uh, or 360 in, in your own life. Yeah. Yeah. It was all of the above <laughs> because well, for many different reasons, number one, the beast gets really active when you start living your best life. There's a force, I believe, call it whatever you want, that doesn't want you to live your purpose, Dan. It just doesn't. Because if you do, you will have an impact in your world. And I believe that there's a force that wants to keep you from impacting the world. And so I would get challenges in front of me when I was pursuing my best life. In fact, nowadays, the way I look at it is, if I get resistance for what I'm doing, to me, that's a breadcrumb that I'm doing the right thing. Mm. Because if you're not making a difference in people's lives, Dan, if you're not impacting your community, you're not threatening anybody, right? 
you're not moving the needle that's going to expand anything. But when you start doing something that's actually meaningful, that's when things begin to get threatened. And that's when you tilt the field a little bit. And so that's when the resistance shows up. The resistance comes in many forms. It could be some news that you weren't expecting financially. It could be somebody that's in your life that gets negative towards you for whatever reason. It could be a financial thing that you didn't see coming. It could be, how about this? COVID. I lost $200,000 in one week in COVID. And so how do you get around those things? And so that was just something that I learned along the way is that, you know, the resistance and all that as a part of it, but it was also exhilarating and exciting because every step I took now had purpose to it. And I knew the reason why I was doing it. And so when you do something, but you know why you're doing it, there's something beautiful in that. And you're willing to take the lumps. You're willing to take the hits because you know why you're doing it. When you're doing something and you're not sure why you're doing it and you take the hits, that's when you get negative. That's when you get grumpy. That's when you start to become attracted to destructive things, right? And that's when you get off track. And that's the difference. So it was all of the above, but I always knew why I was doing something. Let me tell you something, Dan. There's nothing more beautiful than when you see someone living a life of clarity. That's a beautiful thing. And you don't see that very often, unfortunately. You see people that are kind of going through the motions with no clarity. But when you see somebody, you know that person, you recognize that person. And by the way, Dan, you're attracted to that person because it's so rare when you see somebody living their life with clarity. And so it was awesome because I was just living with clarity for the first time. That makes sense. You know, a lot of people, maybe they have a dream that they want to pursue or they do have clarity or they think they have clarity around what it is they want. And maybe they have a full-time job and they want to change the direction of their life and start something new. In your case, it sounds like you sort of put aside your past and went all in into professional speaking. You end up writing this book. You know, I guess I'm curious in your situation, what gave you the the guts to go full force in a new direction as opposed to, you know, still hanging on to the past of what you were doing? Well, I think that the key is I didn't go all in at the beginning. That's also something that I would caution your listeners is that really kind of figuring out, you know, you say you have a dream. I didn't know that I wanted to be a speaker yet. It took me a while to figure that out. I just knew I needed to do something different. And so, you know, what's interesting is, is that I used to think that I need to have it all figured out before I could take the first step. And I learned that the more I started hanging out with successful people, like I've read this somewhere is that you don't want to meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you because you'll realize they're just human, right? <laughs> well, I remember meeting a guy that I looked up to quite a bit. His name was uh, Michael Hyatt. And I got a chance to be around him. And I realized as I was talking to him and hang out with him that he didn't have a lot of it figured out either. The only difference between him and I was he just had the courage to take the next step. That was the difference. And he had the courage to do that over and over and over again. And what I realized is that I didn't need to know what next year, two years, five years with clarity look like. I just needed to know what would the next step was. You know, you and I, we can get in a car in the middle of the night and we could drive across the country with only seeing 20 feet in front of us with all the headlights can show us. But we can get from Chicago or New York to California. We can get from your home from Manhattan to Sacramento there at the beach there all night long if we wanted to and only see 20 feet ahead of us. And that's what life is like. And what I discovered is if I just take the next step and the next step, then what happened over time, things begin to formulate and become clear. Like for now, right now, I don't know what my business is going to look like five years from now. I have an idea where I want to go, but I guarantee it. I want to be surprised five years now where I am. The only thing I got to focus on is take the next step. Right now, the next step is I've launched this book and that's what I'm focused on right now. Then I'll focus on the next step and I'll focus on the next step. So it wasn't that I went all in. It was more of, I just started taking the steps. And then as the steps started to clarify, then I started to realize 
this is where I want to go with my life. And it, and I'm still on that journey. It's fun to be on it, though. Yeah, absolutely. So just as it relates to the book that you recently launched, Rise Above Chaos, if there was one takeaway that you want our listeners to leave with, and I think just from this conversation, there's certainly quite a bit in there that would certainly help shape the life of our listeners. But I'm curious what that takeaway would be. Well, I think the big takeaway is that if you want to lead a life of significance, Dan, you can't do it by yourself. There's no example of any man or any woman that's done anything of significance without the help of others. And so just realizing that you cannot do, do anything alone. You're not on the journey by yourself. And at the end of the day, you're going to have to get really good at connecting with others, but the right people. And so this whole book is all about how you can become a better version of yourself, but ultimately attract the right people that you can do life with. One of the things that I've really been passionate about and so grateful for is the people that I've surrounded myself with. And once I started surrounding myself and doing life with the right people, and I talk about it in detail on how to do this in the book, that's when I really started to take myself to the next level. And every time I found myself getting knocked down, it's the people that I've surrounded myself to my right and to my left that have picked me up and continued me on the journey. And that's made all the difference. I tried to do it alone early on, and I'm so glad that I've learned that lesson. So the one takeaway I think is, is ask yourself who you're surrounding yourself with, because those are the people that's going to take you to the next level. I had a mentor tell me, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. So who are the five people right now in your life? You're the average of that group. Sometimes we got to we gotta uh, make some evaluations and maybe make some changes just in that one simple thing. Yeah, 100%. Well, we could start to wrap up the show. There's been a lot that we covered in, in the past hour or so. You know, the Bits of Gold podcast is all about building your dream life. So with that, what would be your Bits of Gold on how to build the life you love? Well, I think for me, the biggest thing is don't be afraid to take the first step. Sometimes we can get overwhelmed by the journey. You know, some people may be less of this and say, yeah, that sounds good for you, Eric, but I've got this going on in my life. I've got this going on. I got this phase of life. There's always reasons for everything, but a journey of a thousand miles, right? Is all that is, is the courage to take the first step and the courage to take the next step. So don't worry about the journey. Just focus on what the next step is. What's the most important thing you can do right now in your life that's going to move the needle and just do that. And then what you'll find is the next step will become clear, have the courage to take that step and have the courage to take the next step. So I think the one takeaway for me and the thing I have to remind myself every single day is just take the next step, Dan, and everything else will take care of itself. Awesome. Where can people find you, connect with you, reach out if they want to get in touch? Well, I think probably the main thing is I would just go to the book, riseabovechaosbook.com. That's the big thing. You can find all my information in there, but just go to riseabovechaosbook.com. If you anybody in your audience right now has a desire to cut through the whirlwind of their life, right? To rise above the chaos so they can rediscover their passion in life, Dan, so they can redefine their purpose, but more importantly, get the courage to do something about it. That book's going to help them. So that's where I would go. Awesome. Thanks so much for the time today, Eric. Awesome, Dan. Thank you. It's been a pleasure hanging with you, man. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to tune back in the following Monday where we drop an all-new interview to help you continue to build your dream life. Have an amazing week. I love your podcast. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 